ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. It is the most wonderful time of the year. No, not Christmas. It's the time of the year when the music streaming service Spotify hoovers up all of your data and tells you what you actually listen to this year and just how bad your music taste really is. But this week on Download This Show, Spotify Wrapped is also forcing people to wonder just how much of their data have they given away. Also on the show, Elon Musk takes on advertisers who are boycotting Twitter and Google agrees to pay news companies in Canada more money. All of that and much more coming up. This is your guide to the week in media, technology and culture. My name is Mark Fennell and welcome to Download This Show. Yes, indeed, it is a brand new episode of Download This Show. Very excited to have Rad Yo in the studio. Uh, of course, you are the host of Game for Anything, brand new podcast, but well-known and well-loved by uh, fans of Download This Show. Welcome back. I'm so excited to be here. I love how we both spread our arms out at the same time. We're going to fly away. We are going to fly together. <laughs> <laughs> also joining us on the show this week, tech reporter with The Guardian, Josh Taylor. Welcome back. Good to be back. In the last couple of weeks, you will have noticed many people adorning their Instagrams with their shameful list of songs. Uh, anybody with a child will have not posted it because <laughs> nobody wants to post the sheer, of, the sheer number of times that you've listened to songs from the Frozen 2 soundtrack. But everyone else will have posted their Spotify wrapped. But it seems that Spotify... Oh, actually, before we get too deep into it, Rad, can you just explain what Spotify wrapped is? Oh, it's delicious data incarnate. So basically... <laughs> Spotify do. The least delicious thing you've ever said. But anyway, carry on. Spotify basically take all of your listening data and put it into beautiful graphs and lists for you. So they tell you who your top artist was, how many minutes you listened, what your top song was. Um, And then they also do some fun things like this year, it was kind of giving you a sort of tarot card looking thing to tell you... um, I want to say your personality based on your listening habits. I got Time Traveller because apparently I listened to the same songs over and over again from many years ago. I just realised that I listened to a lot of forlorn Irish singers and movie soundtracks. (laughs) There's this one song that I listen to when I'm on a plane and I hit Turbulence, which is from the How to Train Your Dragon soundtrack. (laughs) Why am I telling you this? It's just like when you hit a plane with bad turbulence, you play it and you imagine you're on a dragon. Oh, my God. Why do you let me on the radio and talk about this stuff? I think that's a great tip for just adding some joy to life. (laughs) Uh, It's proven to be somewhat controversial. Why, Josh? Well, I mean, it's basically, it's it's a nice uh, facade on on hoovering up everyone's information and and determining things about them. I think that the thing that probably caught people off guard this year a little bit was the fact that they were basically saying putting you on a map and saying your your tastes are like people who live here and it was quite good I know I know at least among my, the people that I'm uh, friends with it was very good at picking who was gay <laughs> uh, that's basically just based on their uh, on their listening tastes um, like a lot I, of Kim Petras there you are <laughs> Yeah, pretty much. And saying if you if you're from um, they were like if you're from Burlington, then you're definitely gay. Burlington, <laughs> so. Cambridge, and Berkeley, and I got Cambridge. It <laughs> did you? Yeah, I did. Mm. <laughs> A lot of Muna, Japanese house, and boy genius. Okay, stop rubbing in how much cooler than me you are, all right? <laughs> Just, like, stop it. Are people that upset about it, Rad? I don't think the general public are that upset about it. It's, <laughs> it's the Taylor's oldest time of the experts are saying to us, Taylor's dear all, God. time also on my uh, parent list, by the way. Yeah. <laughs> experts saying, dear God, please care about your data safety. And everyone else being like, this is fun. <laughs> I like it. Um, so I don't think there is 
too much serious panic about it at this stage. Uh, It's just another cautionary tale, I suppose, of look at how much data can be collected about you in what seems like inconsequential ways and then look at how that data can be extrapolated. I think people are getting much more wise to it now. I think it was always in the back of people's minds when they when they put out these wraps every year that, oh, they've made data collection and data surveillance uh, actually exciting and fun for a lot of people. And I think, relatively speaking, music is a fairly innocuous thing because people tend to share what they're listening to unless unless it's, um you know, turbulence music or um or the kids. The I'm kids never going to live this down, am I? <laughs> no. a, lot, a lot of the people that I know sort of like, uh, I think there's a, a sort of a big transition now to like, putting on like brown noise or something at night as well, like playlists from Spotify and stuff like that as well. And that will obviously distort people's lists as well. But yeah, I think that that as we're sort of going on, we're seeing how the corporations are collecting and using this data. We're, we're becoming a little bit more wary of it. I think the other important factor to mention here is if you listen to one of the artists more than other, you usually get a video popping up saying from that artist saying, oh, look how, you know, thank you for doing this. I thought that Weird Al's contribution to this was very good where he said, <laughs> I've, I've had something like 80 million streams, which means I get about $12. So <laughs> stuff like that was pretty good. I think the question around how data is used is the really big one, right? Because mm. humans love data. There used to be the service called, well, I think it's still around, Last.fm, which quote-unquote scrubbled your music and collected that data for you. Told Did you, you just say scrubbled? I said scrubbled, yes. I didn't make that word up. I they wish you had because it's amazing. Mm. Uh, so it was basically a plugin that you could use on other players such as Winamp or Windows Media or whatever to collect data on what you were listening to and give you that data back. So I don't think data collection in and of itself is a bad thing. Humans like it. But how it's used <laughs> is the problem. And that's always the big question how it's sold and what it says about us uh, that we're not aware of. Josh, correct me if I'm wrong here, but you're a recent convert to to Spotify, but you were on Apple or is it the other way around? I was on Spotify, then I went to Apple Music for a bit and now I've, I've come back to Spotify. But yeah, Apple wasn't really doing it for me. And I, But I do think part of the reason why it wasn't doing anything for me was because there is so much in what Spotify uses to curate to you in terms of things that they think you would like that was just sort of missing a bit from Apple. I think that's probably part of the larger conversation as well. Like, you know, previously, the way you would sort of discover new music tend to be, you know, you'd hear something out, you'd you'd have friends recommend things to you, things like that. But I wonder how much of it now is just basically all feeding into this machine of, of them sort of collecting all this data on what people like and, and what similar people like and then, you know, determining what other music they might like. It's a very sort of unnatural way of doing it now, I guess. Is it unnatural or is it the most natural way, you know? Because it's it's basically... Wow, that went existential very fast. <laughs> it's giving you recommendations based on what other people like you are listening to rather than perhaps there being a few key tastemakers who are able to, like, bestow upon you new music from on high. But, but it's, it's more community-based, potentially. But also then, of course, there is the question of like how the algorithm works, who's writing mm. it, uh, the fact that when you put all of the power into the hands of one entity, they get to control the conversation. So it's, you know, there's <laughs> pros and cons to both, but I don't think that we can well and truly say that it is only one way. There's also something to be said where it's just a triumph of convenience, right? Oh, yeah. Even just with you describing, Josh, your sort of your journey from Spotify away and back again, like it, it, it seems like a lot of people will always just gravitate back to it because it is just easy. 
Yeah, and that's, I mean, that's one of the things I'm slightly confused about because at least from Apple's point of view, they have a better advantage on doing that, a better app than, than Spotify than anyone else does because they have it all integrated into the phone and, and every other device you might have in your house, but they just haven't done it yet. And I don't really know, I don't know if they've just given up and thought, well, Spotify's the king in this area, we're not going to compete with them. But yeah, it's just, it ultimately just comes down to user convenience in the end. Download the show is what you're listening to. It is your guide to the week in media, technology and culture. Our guests this week, Josh Taylor, from The Guardian and the host of the Game for Anything podcast, Rad Yo. Mark Fennell is my name. And when you turn on your TV in 12 months' time, what services will you see? Will you see ABC iView, SBS On Demand, other networks that I don't work for that I couldn't care for? <laughs> or will you see Netflix or will you see Stan? Or will you see other things that have not yet launched? That has been the subject of much debate of late, Josh. Explain to me how. Yeah, so the, the federal government's basically now looking at what is introducing what's called a prominence framework, which will basically mandate what apps appear first on your smart TVs. And so we've been getting to a stage where, you know, you have these global streaming companies like Disney+, Plus, HBO, and they are able to sort of do deals with the global TV manufacturers to have their apps front and centre. And there's been concern from the free-to-air channels in particular that that will crowd out Australian content and it will mean it would be much harder for people to find, you know, ABC apps and things like that on, on their TV. And so this, this legislation is basically trying to address that and say the channels like the ABC are still sort of very easy to find on these apps. So it has sort of led to a little bit of uh, consternation, particularly from Astro, which is the the um, premium sort of subscription television service company, which is sort of running a campaign saying that the government's trying to take control of your TV remote and things <laughs> like that. From what I can understand, the, the legislation was introduced in the last couple of weeks and there are noises at least that at least Foxtel is not upset with it and the pay, the free TV companies are also not too worried. So we'll have to wait and see how it actually works in practice. But it's one of those interesting things to watch that there's so much going on with, with smart TVs at the moment. Like there's the, there's the other factor as well where some of these smart TV operators are now t- trying to take a slice of the advertising money as well. So there's, there's a lot going on here. When it comes to a, a, a television in a living room, how much do you think you your viewing is shaped by the handful of icons that are on there when you turn it on, Rad? I think 0%. Mm. I think I already know what I want to watch or what app I want to open. And remotes that have those dedicated buttons for like Netflix or Disney Plus actually irritate me because I wish they were mappable. Oh, as in you wish you could change with the button yeah, where it sends you. Exactly, because if I, I don't have a Disney Plus subscription. I don't have a Netflix subscription. So they're useless to me. They take up space on my remote and then sometimes I press them and open an app that I can't use. They work if you have a service that's culturally dominant, I find. So like by simple virtue of having small children, I, <laughs> I have Disney+. Plus. And, and in that sense, it's quite useful. Like it is easy for them to, particularly for that kind of context, like a child being able to press Disney+, Plus is really convenient. And it's also absolutely brand recognition. You see that button, you go, oh, that's a big streamer. That's going to be, you know, worthwhile looking at. There's a bunch of other streamers that, you know, sometimes I have never even heard of and people talk about and like, I didn't know that that existed. So I think even just getting their name out there is, is really important and is going to keep them looking like a big dog. Yeah, I, I think it only works if, if you've got a service that everybody kind of knows and recognises. I think if for the, some of the smaller ones, and I actually think it's less of an issue for Australia's free-to-air networks. I think it's more of an issue for all of the smaller streamers that exist out there. And there are quite a few of them, the Shudder and Curiosity Stream and all these other things out there that I think they are the ones that are sort of at most risk in a sense because there'll always be a degree of cultural 
you know, dominance for seven, nine, ten, ABC, etc. But I think it's it's the sort of the middle ones that I think are, are likely to get lost. Josh, what are your thoughts? I think we're probably going to be getting to the stage where I think it's going to be less about the branding of the whichever streaming service you want. I already know that people, when they are sort of looking on their TV apps now, they're, they're thinking about what program they're going to watch straight away. They don't think about which streaming service it's on. So they just want to find where that is and they don't want to have to go through all the different apps to try and find it. So I think that's probably where, where the next stage is going to go. They just go into um, into try and find it. And I think that will obviously be, you know, good news for the for the larger companies that can obviously hoover up all, lots of content. But for those smaller players, if you want to get in there and, and try and find different things and, and maybe be exposed to new things you might not have been aware of, it might be a bit harder as well. Right. Do you get content paralysis where you're sitting there and there's 50,000 things and you're just like, I don't know which of the things to watch right now. Yes, It's a very except- first world whinge, I know. But like, <laughs> you go sit there and go, I don't know which one of these things I should watch first. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> but that's when I just start re-watching episodes of Catfish. <laughs> <laughs> I think Yours that- is a happy existence, isn't it? <laughs> I think the real issue is when people are trying to find something new, right? Mm. When you've got your comfort shows that you go back to, that's fine. But the market is getting so loud and so crowded, it's getting harder and harder to know what it is you want to spend your time with. And I think it's something that I feel I've experienced with the rise of streaming services of you kind of try to find what is hot in the zeitgeist, what people are talking about, but that doesn't always mean that it's good for you and mm. and something that you want to watch. I feel like it used to be better, but now, especially with Netflix, we're seeing more and more really low-quality, crummy kind of quasi-competition or reality shows popping up, things like Nailed It, that just aren't really that great. So I think you're also getting that decision paralysis because they're just pumping out anything and everything and just trying to get your eyeballs on the screen for however many minutes they can. Well, I think some of the the streamers are thinking about that. So I know that 9 and 10 recently have now launched these sort of dedicated 24-hour channels that just stream like Seinfeld or Judge (laughs) Judy or Twilight Zone, things like that. And that sort of takes the decision out of your hands. You're just like, oh, I I like this show. I'll just put this show on and you can just watch it as long as you want and then turn it off and and go about your day. There is no area of appointment viewing that has held as strongly on this earth as my mother turning on the TV at three o'clock to watch Judge Judy. That's why she was the highest paid person on television for the longest time. Download the show is what you're listening to, your guide to the week in media, technology, culture, and Canadian law. Josh, Google has been in something of a debate. Wow war battle, one of those, uh, with the Canadian government. And it looks like there's been a resolution. Take me back to the beginning. What was actually happening there? So it's very similar to what we have had here in Australia with the news media bargaining code, where the Canadian government were looking at basically requiring Meta and Google to make payments to news publishers for using their content. Both companies did not respond very very nicely, similar to how they responded here. Uh, Meta removed Canadian news from their news feeds. But now we've, we've come to a resolution where they've essentially agreed to pay news media companies in Canada as long as they get a carve out from this legislation, which is exactly what happened in Australia as well. So it's good news. We'll we'll see what happens with Meta. I'm not as confident with them because, you know, we've seen a lot of changes in Meta of late where Meta's shifting away from focusing on news and, and more focused on and what they call creators. They've, they've sort of gutted their news team in Australia as far as I'm aware. So it's it's much less of a focus for them. Why did it take so long, Rad? 
Because they don't want to pay. (laughs) In June, Google actually said that they'd rather shut off links than pay publishers. And I think, you know, both Google and Meta are absolutely enormous companies. They have a lot of weight to throw around. So, So Canada's Online News Act is only applicable to tech platforms with 20 million unique monthly users and annual revenue of above 1 billion Canadian dollars. So that is why it's just Google and Meta. It's not like they've been singled out and named they are just the companies that fit that bill. So when you're looking at companies that absolutely staggeringly enormous, they have the the freedom and the weight to kind of say, no, we don't want to do that. And we're going to try and bully you. You know, that's kind of what they did in Australia and it worked for them. They got to negotiate something that was much more palatable to them. And I think that that ability to slow down these processes, to push back, I want to say it's eye-opening, but it keeps happening and we keep just going, oh, wow. So, you know, it's it's just one of those uh, ongoing amorphous uh, problems with big tech that we will talk about until we die. I mean, the other thing is that Australia's deals are going to be expiring soon and it will be interesting to see whether the companies will come back to the table. I think that this this is probably a good sign for Google to continue its um, investment in news in Australia here. But again, I'm really cynical that Meta is going to come to the table on that. And and the other thing is that now the Albanese government, because it was the Morrison government when it was last negotiated, will they have the do they want to put up a fight with with the two big tech companies uh, over this issue or not? Did Canadian Facebook users care when news disappeared? No, and I think I think it was probably a bit better. I mean, they had similar sort of issues in terms of what was blocked. Like, it wasn't just sort of news sites, but also like news feeds for organisations that shouldn't have otherwise been blocked. But it's it's similar. Like, a lot of people just sort of think that you know they don't get their news from Facebook, so it doesn't really matter. And I think that's that's ultimately the argument that that face, that Meta is making. They're saying that people don't come to Facebook for news, so. But it's not a huge deal. I, I mean, I, I can't speak for other organisations, but I don't think we get a huge amount of traffic from Facebook anyway. So I feel like it's not as big an issue as it, as it maybe once was. Like, I think Twitter is probably the worst for that, and mm. there's no way in, no way in hell that Elon Musk would ever, you know, be party to anything like this as well. So yeah, <laughs> I, I guess that's been part of a transition period over the years, Rad, where where news was a huge component to Facebook for about, you know, sort of 10 or so years ago. And there's been a kind of a concerted strategy, for lack of a better term, to kind of diminish it being a kind of a pillar of content on, on Facebook. Is there a particular reason why? Is it just because, you know, so much misinformation was spread that it became too much work? Like, like what's the logic of that? I think maybe it's just because news became unsexy. It, like, you know, like... I, Use of social media is decreasing across the board and everyone's looking to TikTok as the model now. Everyone's trying, you know, it's happened quite a lot in social media of everyone's trying to be everyone else. Mm. Um, But right now, TikTok are the ones that are growing more rapidly than the others and keeping people on the platform for longer. TikTok doesn't have a huge news component. Um, They get by on being interesting and delivering something that you didn't expect. And I think that that's part of what a lot of other social medias are now trying to move towards Uh, because news can often feel dry and people feel like they can find it elsewhere. They don't want to share facts. They want to share excitement. Mm. Um, And that's that's not what news is a lot of time. It kind of raises an interesting question for the future of news online though, Josh, doesn't it? Because I mean, Facebook for a period of time, it was a really great mechanism to get news articles out to people. And it's obviously diminished. Twitter is a trash fire that don't worry, we'll get to the (laughs) show. 
Um, and, you know, for things like TikTok and Instagram, the only real way to engage as a news brand, the only real way to engage with people on there is to make content dedicated for said platform. So you can, you know, and they all do it, but that doesn't necessarily drive an audience back to your website in a way that it has to be said that Facebook and, and Google do do. So what does that mean for the the future of people going to those dedicated news services like The Guardian or, or whoever? What what happens next, Josh? That's one of the hard things about this whole debate. If, if everyone's going to be off platform and like on a, on a social media site for, for all their content, how are you going to drive people to your website and there? therefore, I guess, have advertisers come and visit you and things like that? I don't think we're quite there yet. I think people still will click through it. And at the moment, at least for TikTok and Instagram, it is about... I guess, brand awareness more than anything else, like making people aware that we're on there. And, and then, you know, for TikTok, at least, we've, we've got a material for us who does like the videos uh, sort of explaining what the news of the day is in, in sort of a very entertaining way. As long as sort of people are aware that we're like, what people are doing is the news, then they'll they'll end up being driven to a website. They'll be like, oh, I know The Guardian will cover that or something like that. So I think that's that's where we can hope at the moment. But, you know, online news is always feels like, it, you know, it's a five seconds to midnight and it might all collapse at some point. But <laughs> we, we've always sort of muddled through <laughs> the other thing I was going to say is that uh, I think with these agreements in particular, like it's, it's, you shouldn't uh, expect this money to constantly be coming in. And the other factor that we need to think about as well is that Google, for example, and, and Meta as well, they're, they're currently in the process of developing AI. And are they using their AIs to be trained on articles that are on the internet? And if so, should uh, therefore they be paying the the news companies that they're hoovering up this content for. Google has argued that they shouldn't, but I think that it'll probably be in the next stage of this discussion where, you know, if they're building these AI systems and they should be paying the news companies that they're, they're hoovering up the information from. And finally here on Download This Show, just how much money does Elon Musk and the platform, the used to be known as Twitter, it is now known as X, but I'm going to refer to as Twitter because X is a terrible name for a platform. <laughs> how much money do they actually need from advertisers? Well, according to Elon Musk, um, he doesn't seem that phased by it. He was asked at a conference to respond to the sheer number of advertisers like Disney and some very big names who have either pulled out completely or cut back their spend on Twitter. And he said, uh, well, I'm going to paraphrase, he, he told them to go F themselves, which kind of raises the question of just how much advertising does, does Twitter need? If that's the response of Elon Musk, Rad, um, why is he I saying that? Yeah, I, w I would say he needs it. Um, <laughs> there are reports that say that 90% of Twitter's revenue came from advertising. 90%, which is, some may say, the majority. <laughs> <laughs> some people who are familiar with numbers. Yeah, if you can do maths. And furthermore, Twitter is now worth $19 billion a year after Elon paid $44 billion for it. And that number has come from Twitter itself. Um, employees were awarded equity in the company at the valuation of 19 billion US dollars. So th there's already been a massive, massive effect. I think Elon is very much showing his love of being controversial and also thinking that he is very, very powerful uh, with this current move. The other thing that was confusing about this particular exchange, Josh, is he framed it as blackmailing, where if somebody says they're not going to advertise, he framed it as though Twitter was being blackmailed by advertisers. You can either choose to advertise or you can choose to not advertise. That's that's not blackmail. That's just like a choice. But I got to say also quickly, it wasn't just that he's saying Twitter can't be blackmailed. He made it personal. He said like he won't be blackmailed. Elon Musk made it personal, did he? I'm, I'm shocked. <laughs> 
And Elon also said that if the company fails, it will fail because of an advertiser boycott, and that will be what bankrupts the company. So in some ways, straight from the horse's mouth, they do need advertisers, so this is quite an interesting statement to be making. <laughs> well, I think it comes down to advertisers don't want their ads against what is hateful content. And this was always going to be the issue with, with you know, relaxing the handbrake on, on the content moderation policies that Twitter had in place under the old administration. I think it'll be interesting to watch in the next couple of months where it goes because I think there's I think his next interest payment on the loan that he's taken out to basically buy Twitter is up in January. And if they don't have the money to sort of cover it, that could get interesting in terms of the, whether the banks try to muscle in and potentially try and take over or try to make changes to Twitter. I think if they were going to do that, getting rid of Elon would be the, the sort of the number one thing that they would pro- probably do. You know, you've got Linda Yaccarino as the s- supposed CEO, but you know, she just has these very strange tweets that she puts out and doesn't really make a lot of sense. Whereas he's he's going full firebrand and, and you know, annoying a lot of the advertisers. So I think that. They'll want stability, and and I don't think that they'll find that with Elon. Look, Elon has always been controversial. He's always, you know, had a loud mouth, so to speak. Um, And I feel like this latest move is another little penny in the jar of the idea that he is courting a very particular audience and adding fuel to the fire and getting them really behind him. Because by saying that uh, he's being blackmailed by advertisers pulling out sort of creates an us versus them mentality, right? It's sort of saying that he's in the right and these people are coming in and doing something nefarious by not wanting to spend money on a platform that they no longer agree with. So I think that they're really big words. And it, again, like I, I always saw it as a bit of a fun but silly perhaps conspiracy theory that Elon was just trying to tank Twitter as an attempt to control conversation. But when you have someone coming out and making these statements in the full knowledge that they need these advertisers for the platform to remain at all, it really starts to make you go, is he trying to kill the company? Is it salvageable, Josh? Like, like... (laughs) Is it salvageable as a culture and is it salvageable as a piece of tech that can be made broad, that can be made to the town square that it once was, or, you know, for better, for worse? So I think I think there's a few things happening there. I think that, I mean, Twitter was never a perfect company before Elon Musk. We've seen companies like, you know, MySpace still technically exists. Some of the sort of early, early social media sites on the internet that have basically stopped um, existing are still are still around in some form. Yahoo, things like that I'm thinking of. So it's possible that they'll keep going on. I think that it will just depend on where the audience is. I think if Elon goes, then probably a lot of the people who have flocked to the platform because of him, all the, all the people buying blue ticks basically, are probably likely to leave. And the idea of what Twitter does will continue to exist, whether Twitter is actually doing it themselves. It's really hard to say. Sorry, you, you had me for a second, but the moment you said that MySpace still existed, I had to <laughs> I was like, what? <laughs> it's still there? Do you think uh, Twitter is salvageable? I think that it is because as much as so many people who were really against the exchange of power, uh, exchange of ownership to Elon, people still stayed on the platform. Um, they're using it less, sure, but there are still people. Um, and I don't think that those that came to the platform for Musk will necessarily completely leave. Sure, I think usage levels may alter, but it still has a massive user base. The thing that it needs is to be able to encourage the voices that keep other people on the platform. Basically, the Twitter accounts that everybody else wants to see. Um, I think that those 
people still can be encouraged onto the platform, but I don't think that it's going to happen in Musk's hands. At the same time, I don't know if Twitter itself needs to be revived. I think that... <laughs> Let it die. Well, I just think that other social medias can and will pop up. And as much as I don't want everything to become meta, I don't want them to buy up everything and have threads be the new Twitter. Um, I do think that we, you know, it needs to be more fractured, right? Like the conversation again and again comes down to the fact that these big tech companies hold too much power in one place. Um, so the good thing about Twitter is that it isn't meta. Um. <laughs> <laughs> we are out of time. Huge thank you to our guest this week, uh, Radio. If you'd like to hear more of Radio, make sure you check out the Game for Anything podcast. Rad, thanks for joining us on thank the show. You. Uh, Josh Taylor is from The Guardian and thank you so much for joining us thank on the you. show. My name is Mike Fennell and I'll catch you next week for the final episode of Download This Show for 2023. We'll be back in 2024, but until then, goodbye. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.